Revelation chapter 20, we're going just a few pages from the very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 7, or chapter 20, as we wind down an eight-part series of messages entitled, Not the End. A lady in the first service joked with me, she said, Pastor Mike, this series has been so long that by the time you finish convincing us it's not the end, it's very likely going to be the end. <laughs> True. I typically don't do eight-part series. However, it's been my goal from the beginning to explain to you how I know this is not the end because both Old Testament and New Testament are incredibly specific about certain events that must occur before the end is upon us. Again, when people talk about the end of the world, they're typically talking about the end of days. The end of time. And the Bible is incredibly specific. While not revealing the specific timeline, obviously, the Bible does, however, highlight a series of events. And I mean grand worldwide events that cannot be missed. They cannot be overlooked. They cannot be ignored. And since those events have not occurred, and we have the historical record, I know this is not the end. We are living, according to Bible scholars, in an age known as the church age or the dispensation of grace. A dispensation is an era of time. The church age began at the cross or with the formation of the early Christian church. When Jesus died and then rose again at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the church exploded onto the scene. From the formation of the early church until the rapture of the church, whereby the worldwide church, followers of Jesus Christ, are caught up together to meet God in the air, that space between is known as the church age. That means, church, that the rapture of the church is the next great event for the church. Now, what follows the rapture is actually a, a two-path a two event. Followers of Jesus Christ, having been caught up with Christ in the air, are going to experience the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And we took a whole Sunday and examined what the Bible says about the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. This is the place where followers of Jesus are going to be rewarded for all of our service. It is going to be fantastic. It is going to be a celebration unlike anything that's ever been known by man before. The Bible talks about the marriage of the Lamb following the judgment seat. The bridegroom of Christ, the church being the bridegroom and Christ being the groom, we're finally united together. And then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, an enormous feast in the presence of Jesus. Now, while the church is enduring and going through the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb, the earth will be going through a time of unprecedented suffering. It's called Daniel's 70th week, according to your Old Testament. It's a seven-year time period of unprecedented judgment and suffering on planet earth. This seven-year period is designed by God primarily to judge the sin of the earth and to draw Israel back to himself. At the very end of the great tribulation, there'll be an enormous war. A war unlike any other war in the history of man. It's called Armageddon. 
At that time, at the glorious appearing, Jesus returns, according to the Bible, and defeats all of Israel's enemies. And it's at that moment that Israel finally embraces Jesus Christ as Messiah. That ushers in the Messianic Age, or the Millennial Kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, peace and tranquility on planet Earth for 1,000 years. We examined that last time. Today, we're going to close our study by examining a few verses in Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment that follows that kingdom. Now, let me take a minute and thank you for your attendance and your attention over the past few weeks. We've experienced a deep dive into biblical prophecy, and it's not been easy. I had one lady text me a few weeks ago, Pastor Mike, I'm exhausted. It's like, so am I. Studying biblical prophecy is not easy, and we've not shied away from the difficult questions, nor will we today. So let me say thank you for hanging in there with me. Hang in there one more message because we've got one more difficult topic to deal with today. And I promise you in return, next week I'm going to bring a sermon about puppies and rainbows. It's going to be awesome. Revelation chapter 20, read with me beginning in verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne. Picture this in your mind. The throne was great. Now, not the way we would use the word great. That's a great throne. No. It's awesome. And again, not the way we would use that word. Awesome. I got a space right up front at the mall. Awesome. No. The word great in verse 11 means imposing. The word great means awe-inspiring. The kind of scene that makes your mouth drop. And I saw a great white throne. White signifies absolute purity and holiness belonging to the one who sits on that great white throne. The throne is inhabited by one that is exuding a white hot righteousness unlike anything the world has ever seen. And I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. John doesn't identify who's sitting on it, but it's undoubtedly Jesus himself. John chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus said, the father has given all judgment to the son. Other verses in your New Testament say the same. It is not up to the Father to judge me. It is the Father, the very essence of the triune God, that I have offended by my sin. I'm not judged by my Father. I'm judged by the Redeemer who made it possible to avoid the judgment in the first place. Hang on. I'm going to talk more about that. The earth and the heavens fled from His presence. There was no place for them. That indicates that the judgment is going to be a place of abject dread. Earth and sky, earth and the heavens are annihilated. They flee from the presence. Only the throne remains. Keep reading. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death in Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, the book of life incidentally, contains the names of everyone in the history of humanity who has responded to the revelation at their disposal. For us, that revelation is Jesus Christ as Savior. And as one who has responded, embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ, my name is in the book of life. But listen again, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, at Grace Community Church, We believe in a literal, eternal, everlasting separation from God, what the Bible calls hell. Now, there are two biblical doctrines that drive people crazy, two especially, that drive people mad. There are two teachings in your Bible that make people angry. One of them is the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. To the Father. No one gets to the Father except through me. Oh, that drives skeptics crazy. How can you make such a statement? How can you go to a church that believes there's only one way to God? That's because they see the claim as exclusive, as if Jesus is making the claim to divide people. No, Jesus is making the claim to unite people. Jesus is revealing the solution, the escape, the way out of the great white throne judgment. The other claim that people just hate is the biblical teaching of eternal separation from God. We just don't like it. It's politically incorrect. It's socially unacceptable. It's considered archaic or medieval. It's downright disturbing to most people. About 300 years ago, there was a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that's become famous in American history. It was part of the Great Awakening, and the sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you were asked to read it as part of a literature course in high school or college. In that sermon, Jonathan Edwards literally scared scores and scores of people into the kingdom. That very day following the sermon... Many, many, many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Again, maybe because they were scared to death. (laughs) I'm not here to argue that point. But here's part of what he said. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Now imagine, he's painting a picture with his words. He's describing sinful humanity hanging above the great abyss, the lake of fire. And there's nothing between my feet and the burning sulfur, but air. He goes on. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. Precarious, to say the least. Horrifying, to put it best. That's why a lot of people object to statements like that or preaching like that. That's not my God, I've been told. That's not my God. I can't worship a God that would ever sentence anyone to outer darkness 
or God forbid, a lake of fire. Do you realize how presumptuous a statement like that really is? That's not my God. If I can be transparent with you for a moment, I'll admit publicly that it bothers me too. Because I have relatives who I love who reject my belief in Jesus Christ. Have no respect for what I do for a living. I have friends from high school and college who reject what I believe about Jesus Christ. So it bothers me too, but let me remind you, church, it's not within our power to create a God of our choosing. And that's so important for you to get that. It's not within our power to create a God of our own choosing. We have to deal with a God who already exists. And oh, by the way, do you know what drives that dissent? Do you know what drives that disbelief, that rejection of the biblical principle? Self-sovereignty. Self-sovereignty. I mean, think about it for a minute. When I claim that I don't believe something about God that is crystal clear from his revelation, then what I'm saying is that I'm sovereign over God. I'm sovereign over the Bible. I define him. He does not define me. How presumptuous. How childish. You see, I would argue that God is not unjust for sentencing someone who does not take his redemption, God would be unjust only if he never revealed there was a consequence in the first place. What would make God unjust is not his rejection of evil or his rejection of sin. That's the kind of God we would want. What would make God unjust is if he never revealed the consequence in the first place. Can you imagine driving through a small town on vacation? And you're thinking to yourself, even though you've never seen a sign so far, speed limit's probably 30, 35. So you drive 35 miles an hour, and all of a sudden you see those blue lights behind you. And a police officer pulls you over and says, I clocked you speeding. Get out of the vehicle. He frisks you, puts you in handcuffs, and carries you to jail. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Who locks somebody in jail having not first revealed the speed limit? Well, what's the speed limit? Well, we don't post the speed limit on signs because we don't want to upset people. We don't want people to turn around and leave our town because they don't like speed limit signs. How presumptuous are we? Or imagine receiving a, an unpleasant diagnosis from a doctor. A doctor sits down and has that horrible conversation with someone. You have cancer. Here are your treatment options. Here's how we're going to try and beat this disease. Nope. I reject you. I reject your treatment. You're fired as my doctor because I don't like your diagnosis. What kind of sense does that make? And yet that's how we respond to God. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God says, do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. Let me remind you. It's taken almost 66 
and seven-eighths books in your Bible for us to get to final judgment. From Genesis to Revelation 19, God has been patient. He has been loving. He has been compassionate. He has been kind and merciful. He has been willing to forgive. He has been quick to forgive and reinstate. He has been ready to cover our sin. And finally, at the very end, the very last event prior to eternity, in one existence or another, we finally get to judgment. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, It is not God's will that anyone should perish, but that all should find salvation in Jesus Christ. Church, please hear me. Men choose to reject God, not the other way around. Now, this may surprise you, but Jesus spoke often about hell. In fact, if you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus discussed the idea of hell at least 11 times in the Gospels. That's more than he spoke about heaven. Did you know that? That might surprise some of you. But Jesus had quite a bit to say about hell. And on one occasion, he did so using a parable. We all know what a parable is, right? A parable is a story that based upon their culture and their time, their climate, their profession, whatever it was, the kind of life they lived and how they lived it, they could understand something greater something more significant, something more complex even, based upon a small story that Jesus told. Jesus told stories all the time, and one of them is recorded in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, and it has everything to do with heaven and hell. Verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, you and I probably can't relate to that. Because I could live the rest of my life and never grow the first vegetable. Because I could drive to the grocery store and buy everything I need. But these people couldn't. This man may not be a professional farmer. This man may be someone who's just trying to feed his family, put bread on the table. Maybe he's not only trying to feed his family, maybe he's trying to provide for his family and make a living. Either way, they understood the setting. Verse 25. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. Now, your Bible might call this the parable of the wheat and the tares. T-A-R-E-S. What in the world is a tear? Well, what in the world's a weed? We all know what a weed looks like, what a weed is. But this is one of those instances where our English language betrays us. Because quite frankly, the weed that Jesus is speaking about is a weed, get this, that looks just like wheat. It is a very specific weed that grows in that part of the world. And if this particular weed were growing next to wheat, the untrained eye wouldn't be able to tell them apart until they blossomed at the top and produced more seeds. The seeds of the wheat were one color, the seeds of the tares or the weeds were another color. Watch. When the wheat sprouted in the f- and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. Verse 27. 
the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this, he replied. So the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? Now, if you're thinking ahead or reading ahead or trying to read between the lines and you think you know what he's saying, you're probably thinking, well, now, wouldn't that make sense? The wheat, those are the righteous on planet Earth. The weeds, those are the unrighteous, evil people on planet Earth. Wouldn't this be a better existence? Wouldn't the world be a better place if God took away all the evil people? Notice this response. Do you want us to go and pull them up? Verse 29. No, he answered. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat from them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Let both good and evil exist together on earth until the great white throne judgment, the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Skip ahead to verse 36. Now he's going to explain the parable. Then he left the crowd, went into the house. So the large crowd is gone. His audience has gotten much smaller. He's inside a home. His disciples come to him and say, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is me, the son of man. He's talking about himself. I make it possible for you to become wheat. I make it possible for you to be righteous in the eyes of God. Remember, the wheat, which we all know what wheat looks like. I mean, all you need to see is a couple of cereal commercials, and you know what wheat looks like, right? You know, that early morning scene, that big John Deere tractor making its way through the field somewhere in Nebraska, and the voice, we make our wheat or our cereal from 100% natural ingredients, blah, 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 whatever. And there's the, there's the wheat kind of blowing in the breeze. We know what wheat looks like. But if you put the wheat next to this specific kind of weed, we probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Follow me. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who makes you look righteous, or I'm the one who makes you righteous, even though you might look like the weed. The world is filled with good and evil people. You don't always recognize the difference. Because in the eyes of a holy God, who is righteous and without sin, I'm every bit as evil as the next guy. You don't have to be a murderer to be unrighteous, unlike God, ungodlike, ungodly. You just have to be a sinner. So, the wheat, those covered by Christ, made righteous by Christ, growing next to the weeds. Watch. The field is the world. Verse 38. Now, again, this is where the English language kind of doesn't do us any favors. He's not talking about the globe, the planet. He's talking about the cosmos. That's the word, cosmos. It's the same word from which we get our word cosmetics. When you put cosmetics on your face, you, you project a face to the world. What, what, what the world means here is the field is the world. The field is the perceived existence of man. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. We just read about that in Revelation 20. And the harvesters are angels. Watch this. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now when I read that, if you're like me, you're likely to squirm a little bit in your seat. Because I don't like the sound of that. I don't like the words weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't like the idea of a fiery furnace. It makes me uncomfortable. When I read something like that, many of you, your mind immediately goes to a loved one, a relative, a close friend, a co-worker, who's basically a good person. They just don't believe what we believe about God or about Jesus or about the Bible. Look, I get that. I totally get that. And, and, and it bothers me. It's, it, it's part of the reason I do what I do for a living. But again, church, let me remind you, I'm not God. And neither are you. And if you back me into a corner and force me to take sides, either my loved one who disregards and rejects the Bible in Jesus Christ or Jesus himself, I'm sorry, I have to choose. I'll go with Jesus. Now, Back to Revelation 20. In those few verses we read a moment ago, we get incredible detail as to what's going to take place at the judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. Let me just point out a few of these things. Number one, absolute holiness and absolute purity are going to be the standard at the Great White Throne Judgment. Again, verse 11, Revelation 20, I saw a great imposing ominous, awesome, white throne. That's the significance of the white throne. Absolute holiness, absolute purity, that's going to be the standard. So follow. There is very likely going to be hundreds of millions of, quote, good people who are going to stand at the great white throne judgment. I'm talking about men and women whose sins might barely make a nun blush, they're going to stand before God knowing that the standard is not the bigness of their sin. How big is your sin? How big is my sin? Whose sin is greater? Whose sin is darker? Who's more evil, you or me? That's not the standard. The standard is, have you sinned against holy God even once? And by the way, we wouldn't have it any other way, would we? Do you want a God who last minute changes the standard? Do you want a God, a ruler, a judge even, who last minute, willy-nilly, decides to let some in and keep others out? Does the liar get in, but we keep the tax cheat out? Who gets to decide? Is your sin great enough to keep you out? Is mine small enough to let me in? That's no God at all. Absolute holiness, absolute purity is going to be the standard. Here's number two, also from verse 11. Earth and sky will be annihilated. Only the throne will remain. John wrote, earth and sky fled from his presence. This will be a scene of horrible dread. Earth and sky no longer exist because earth and sky no longer matter. In fact, they're going to be recreated in chapter 21. Here's number three. According to verse 12, millions, if not billions, will stand vulnerable. 
before God. Vulnerable before God. John writes in verse 12, And I saw the dead before the throne. The dead of all ages before the throne. Billions of people will stand before God with nothing to shield them from his omnipotent judgment. Think about that for a minute. Maybe that image will help you appreciate the New Testament teaching that Jesus Christ is my mediator. He's my advocate. Jesus Christ represents me before that holy and pure heavenly father. You see, as a follower of Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, there will never be a split second in my life where I stand uncovered before God. My sin is covered. I trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Number four, according to verse 12, all unbelievers will be judged individually. And I saw the dead, John writes, great and small. That means that a king is going to be standing next to a beggar at the great white throne judgment. That means that a president could be standing next to a factory line worker at the great white throne judgment. That means that Osama bin Laden could be standing next to a fourth grade school teacher at the great white throne judgment. You say, well, wait a minute, that just doesn't make sense. In our mind's economy of sin, no, it doesn't. Because the sin of a fourth grade school teacher can't hold a candle to the sin of Osama bin Laden. But remember, that's not the standard whose is greater. The standard is absolute purity, righteousness, and holiness. There will be only one reason to be present at this judgment. It's that they never claimed the protection that was offered by Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a scene of regret and remorse. Because they're going to know it. Intuitively, they're going to know it. And John says in verse 12, number 5, two books are going to be opened. The books may be symbolic. Obviously, God doesn't have a problem with his memory. He is perfect omniscience. So God doesn't need to write things down to remind himself later. Oh, Mike did that. Mike said that. Maybe the books are symbolic, but the books are open. And they're identified for us. One set of books records our deeds, everything I've ever done. Another book of life records our decision to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. So you got two kinds of books. The books of condemnation. By the way, every person who's ever been born in the history of the world, their name is in that book or those books. Because all have sinned, Romans 3, and fallen short of God's glory. So every impure thought, every selfish motive, every harmful word, every manipulation of the truth, they're all written down. The second book, however, is the book of life. And that book contains the names of every person whose sins are covered by Christ. So names not found in the book of life are destined for eternal separation from God. And it all begins at the great white throne. Finally, number six from verse 12, people will be judged by what they knew. People will be judged by what they knew. I said earlier, we're going to be judged or they're going to be judged based upon the revelation at their disposal. It says in verse 12, they will be judged according to what they had done. Don't get confused. They did what they did because of what they knew. 
The revelation at our disposal is that Jesus Christ was God's son. He died and rose again from my sin. Repentance and faith. I embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ and decide to follow him. That's what puts my name, writes it down in the book of life. But not all have been exposed to that kind of revelation. The question is, how did they respond based upon what they knew? This is going to be the most fair and impartial judgment the world has ever known. And everyone present will intuitively know it. No one's going to stand before the great right throne judgment and go, this just isn't right. Not going to happen. Like a child intuitively knows that telling a lie is wrong, but goes ahead and does it anyway. Or taking something that doesn't belong to him intuitively knows that's wrong, but they go ahead and do it anyway. Everyone is going to intuitively know that the judgment is fair. Mankind's going to be responsible to God like never before. Of all the people who will stand one day, perhaps billions of people, at the great white throne judgment, they'll have one thing in common. They lack the kind of righteousness that God demands. And again, they're going to know it. Their sin was con committed against a righteous and holy God. And for the first time, they're going to see that clearly, crystal clearly. Again, remember, it's not about how big is your sin. It's about against whom have you committed the sin. That's the problem with sin in the Bible. The reason sin separates us from a holy God is not because mine is greater than yours, yours is darker than mine, theirs is more significant than someone else's. It's because of the one against whom we have sinned. Look, let me illustrate. Back in the 1970s, when I was a child, long before the invention of paintball wars and paintball guns and paintball venues... If you were a fourth or fifth grade boy, you had a serious problem on your hands. When you played war and shot somebody, how do you keep them from going, you missed? Remember? You're five and pew, pew, I got you. No, you didn't. You missed. Mom, I got him. I spent the better part of my childhood trying to resolve this issue so that when I played war with my buddies... If I got you, you knew it, and I knew it. When I was in the fifth grade, we got this brilliant idea. If you're going to play war, play with BB guns. Because if you pop your buddy in the rib cage with a BB at close range, believe me, he knows he's been got. Obviously, we had to keep this from our parents, or we'd have been in trouble. But think about this. It's the trouble that I want to explain. Shooting my fifth grade buddy with a BB gun, were my parents to see me, would get me in a certain level of trouble. Now imagine the kind of trouble I'd be in if I shot my little sister with that BB gun. Be significantly greater, wouldn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> How about shooting my buddy's next door neighbor's mom with a BB gun? Oh my goodness, I'd be grounded for a month. Listen, you shoot the president of the United States with a BB gun, you are going to jail at 12 years old. That's the reality of the great white throne judgment. It's not about the economy or the currency of evil on planet Earth. It's about the wheat that's been deemed righteous 
may look exactly like the tear or the weed, but one is righteous, one is not. One has responded to the gift of grace, the other has rejected it. It's not about whose sin is greater. It's about the one against whom we have sinned. What every person at the great white throne judgment is going to understand completely is that they rejected the way out. They rejected the salvation that was offered to them. You know, before you get too quick to question, how could God do such a thing? I want you to remember this verse. John 3, verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why he came. But to save the world through him. That's the motivation of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will never see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Look, if you've never gotten yourself to the point where you've made a conscious decision, conscious decision as to what you believe about Jesus Christ, let me give you a little nudge in that direction. If you've never gotten to a point where you've asked, who was Jesus? Do I buy it? And have I responded? I'd love to have that conversation with you. Because the next time I see Jesus, I want it to be at the rapture in heaven. I certainly don't want it to be at the great white throne judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to us, whether we like it or not. God, our hearts are heavy for those we love who simply don't believe what we believe about your son, Jesus. And Father, our motivation is not to point fingers of shame toward anyone because as we've already talked or discussed, it's not about whose sin is greater, it's about whose sin is covered. God, help us light our community with the light of your forgiveness and grace. God, give us words when we need them. Give us boldness to encourage those we love. Because of your Son and through him, I pray. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.